Welcome everyone to our second The Big Question podcast, collaboration between TeacherTap and the Chartered College of Teaching, in which we look at hot off the press data on various topics concerning teaching, learning and teacher development, and ask teachers to comment on the findings by reflecting on their own experiences. My name is Alison Peacock, I'm the CEO of the Chartered College of Teaching, and I will be hosting today's episode. I'm delighted to be joined by Karen Vespisa, Chief Operating Officer at TeacherTap, Lisa Maria Muller, our Head of Research, and two chartered teachers, Debbie Huntley, a primary school teacher, and Ellen Harris, a geography teacher. Today's big question is, does COGSI work across all subjects and phases? Karen, you and your team have asked teachers about their understanding of cognitive science and its application in their classrooms. What were some of the key findings? So we've been asking teachers on TeachTap to rate their understanding of cognitive science for the last four years now. And we do this by asking how, how strong is your understanding of the term cognitive science? And we give them a scale uh, from one, which is very weak, through to five, which is very strong. And back in 2019, when we started asking this, just under a third of teachers rated their understanding as strong. This increased a little bit in 2020, so it's just over a third then. And when we asked this year, it had risen to nearly half teachers saying that their understanding was strong or very strong. But while there's definitely been an increase, that hasn't actually been a linear increase. I don't know if you noticed, but I, I didn't mention what happened in 2021. And there was a bit of a dip in that year where the teachers who said that their understanding was strong or very strong actually fell back to about a third so about the same as that initial 2019 level i'm not quite sure why it might be one for the panel to discuss it could be a pandemic effect or maybe it's a case of because of its kind of growing popularity maybe it was a case of the more you know the more you realize you don't know if you know what i mean we have looked at whether the phase that you work in affects how teachers rate their own understanding. And just focusing in on the most recent, the, the 2022 data, we found that teachers working in secondary schools were significantly more likely to rate their understanding as strong or very strong than their colleagues working in primaries. Just over half of teachers who worked in secondary said strong or very strong, compared to just over a third in primary schools saying strong or very strong. But within secondary, there is a difference as well that depends on which subject you teach. The group that most often said that they had a strong or very strong understanding was, you might have guessed it, science teachers. Those that said that they had the weakest understanding, so weak or very weak, were the PE teacher group. I personally don't know how you would implement COGSI in PE. That, that's one that maybe our panel or maybe our listeners can help me with. I don't know. Um, and I checked on geography as well for Ellen, um, and that kind of sits in the middle of the two, so not the, the kind of most confident, certainly not the, the least confident somewhere in between. Seniority also plays a role here. Leaders in schools, the head teachers and the senior leadership team, rated their understanding higher than classroom teachers. So around half of leaders said that their understanding was strong or very strong compared to only around a third of class teachers. But this is all just asking people to say where they would rate themselves. What I'm actually interested in is who's doing this stuff. So to investigate the doing, 
we looked at one of the most popular cognitive science activities, retrieval practice. So like COGSI in general, Teach Tap data shows that teachers undertaking retrieval practice has increased over time. In 2022, even more teachers were using it compared back to 2019. And it's really interesting, in 2022, 91% of teachers said that they were using retrieval practice in their lessons. So a massive amount of the profession are, are doing this on a regular basis. But when we look at those two data points together, the actual doing and rating your understanding, what we see is that even those teachers who said that their understanding of cognitive science is weak, they dedicated lesson time to doing retrieval practice in most or all of their lessons. So a quarter said that they did that, even though they said that they don't really understand what it is. And to me, that suggests that you don't have to put a label on this stuff to be actually doing it. There is an interesting correlation though, around two thirds of teachers who say they have the very strong understanding of cognitive science undertake retrieval exercises every lesson. And that's more than twice those who consider their understanding to be very weak. Those ratios, those patterns are the same in both primary and secondary. And I think my, my final takeaway is that when, when we look at just the doing, so doing retrieval practice, there's very little difference between primary and secondary. So I think that perhaps primary teachers, they've said that their understanding of cognitive science is lower. Fewer of them said that they had a very strong understanding. But actually, I think maybe that's just about putting a label on stuff rather than what's actually going on in the classroom. Oh, very interesting. Thank you, Karen. There's so much to unpack there. I'm very tempted, but it's not going to be me. I'm going to ask our teachers. So if I start with you, Debbie, what do you think of those findings generally? I think they're very interesting. It doesn't massively surprise me, I think, particularly having you know recently completed the Chartered Teacher course. Cognitive science is fascinating, but I think it suffers from a... I, th I think, um, you know, Karen is right. I think the labelling of it makes you think potentially it's something it's not or it's something you're missing out on. I think from um, a primary perspective, absolutely, we're doing it. And I think, you know, I might be a bit biased, but I think I think our underlying pedagogy is incredibly strong as primary practitioners. We are teaching 13, 14 different subjects. Something like retrieval practice is absolutely key. Um, if I'm teaching French once a week or if I'm teaching a history lesson, the start of the next history lesson, I need to, I need the children to be able to recap, be able to think about where their learning took them to in the previous lesson and where we go on to next. I think that, you know, we, we, are, we are doing it all the time. I think if I spoke to my colleagues, very few of them would be able to tell me what cognitive science was and would probably see it as quite a threat. But actually, if you went into the lessons, they're modeling constantly. They're using an example, you know, a waggle, what a good one looks like. We do that all the time. And um, we use dual coding. You know, these are all practices that we are using. I think what's interesting is that well, I think maybe it's more of an intrinsic thing. I think it's it, it's something you just do without thinking about it necessarily. And maybe that's why, because we're less likely to label it, we just inherently do it. It's part of your kind of your modus operandi, just the way that you work in the classroom. So it's really part of the repertoire of a yes. good primary teacher to use a whole it, range it, of strategies. 100%. And I think what's interesting is that in the kind of the, the you know, the more recent teacher training, 
it's a it's part of the core content framework for teacher training now this use of the you know the specific vocabulary is used so the newer teachers coming in know about retrieval practice they know about dual coding um, i'm going off to to speak to a cohort of trainee teachers in a couple of weeks time about dual coding to share my the work i've done on my research project if i talk to colleagues who've been teaching 5 10 15 years a lot of those uh, labels a lot of those ideas practices they they've never heard of you know i've done a staff meeting on dual coding they'll kind of look at me and say dual watting but they're doing it all the time so I think I think that's a big thing. I think it's the labelling. I think I think Karen's right. I think it's the labelling that is so different. Really interesting. So coming to you, Ellen, from a secondary perspective, what's your take on on Karen's findings? I agree with a lot of what Debbie's just been saying. Actually, even from a secondary perspective, I think we are doing a lot of these things all the time without knowing it for a lot of teaching members of staff. I think certainly from my experience and through doing C teach over the last couple of years, that putting a label on it enables me to have a much much greater understanding of exactly how I should be putting these things into a lesson and doing them well essentially yes I've always probably done retrieval practice to a certain extent I've always thought a little bit about cognitive load theory possibly a little bit about space practice but not as much as I should have been doing for the full benefit of my students and so I think personally putting a label on it has enabled me to do these things much much better than I probably was doing in the past and I'm in exactly the same boat in terms of the, the timelines and, and now seeing people with in the early careers framework now coming through who know a lot more about this and are going to be, not to say we're not good teachers, because we are, as, we say, as I've said, we've, we've been doing these kind of things um, naturally anyway, but who are probably in terms of this kind of novice to expert teacher continuum much, much further potentially along that continuum from the outset because of knowing a lot more of the basis behind of this good quality teaching than I potentially was and the others were when I trained eight years ago because until I started doing C-Teach I had no idea until a couple of years ago about even many of these terms I'd never even heard these terms before compared to eight years ago when I was training in in a a school-centered context so I think it's we're in a much better position now than we were I think that putting a label on it is helping people understand them a lot better and become better teachers but I don't necessarily think that we were in a bad position beforehand not knowing a lot of this stuff because we were doing it. Yes but the more that you understand the rationale and the more that you can understand why something might be beneficial you're more likely to adhere to a set of practices in in a way that is most helpful aren't you. In terms of the project you did when you were studying to become a chartered teacher you're a geographer So was it about geography? Can you tell us a bit about what your project was about? Yeah, so I looked at retrieval practice in a geography context with a year 10 class over a period of five weeks and we were studying hazards. I was looking at essentially whether they had, through doing retrieval practice activities, better topic knowledge retention over a five week period. So I started off with a baseline assessment at the beginning, first couple of weeks of year 10 at the start of the topic. It was a couple of weeks in by that stage to actually ensure they had a little bit of knowledge on the topic to assess their level of understanding and then over a period of five weeks I implemented every single lesson a retrieval practice starter activity trying to recall previous knowledge on the topic Uh, done in quite a repetitive nature it has to be said because there was only so much topic knowledge content that we'd done by that stage and then at the end of the five weeks um, we repeated the assessment that we'd done at the beginning to see whether they'd managed to retain and knew in better detail a lot of the 
hazards content that they'd done. And I had quite a lot of success with that compared to the control class, which was admittedly taught by another teacher. But so I think it was something like 27% increase in topic knowledge retention, um, which for us is really good over such a short period of time. And I found that really beneficial, actually, to really think in detail about the types of activities that I was doing for retrieval practice. Um, a lot of them were kind of quizzes or um, grids with questions in where you had to try and kind of, even though one of the premises of retrieval is not trying to put too much of a competitive edge on it, but it was a little bit of competition with points or colours for each of the questions and you had to try and get as, as many as you could in a, in a time provided. So we did have success with it, but I did find that there were some limitations in terms of that, in terms of the fact that it almost was too repetitive because we were looking at such a small amount of topic content that there were only so many ways you could rephrase a certain element of the topic into different questions over that period of time. And we're quite lucky we have five or six lessons a fortnight with our year 10 so that we have we saw them quite a lot within a five-week period there was a then a question towards the end of that piece of research over whether it was retrieval that was being really beneficial or whether it was essentially covering encouraging too much rote learning mm. but obviously a lot of people do say any retrieval is better than none even if it is rote learning I've now got questions over the types of retrieval that I'm doing and really critically looking at those much more and that's where I think you have to consider retrieval amongst many other types of cogsci and not just look at it as standalone because ultimately that links in a lot to space practice and interleaving and really thinking about curriculum sequencing to make sure you're getting the, the best out of it because I think so much of that individual topic in a short space of time did lead to benefits but I question how beneficial it was and we'll soon see because now I've got my pile of mocks on my desk ready to mark from that year group from last year that I did this research with so we will see if they can remember much about hazards. Okay I mean I, I think the, that notion of constantly refining your practice and asking questions about, even though, you know, on the surface, you had very strong results, not being satisfied with that and, and constantly going back and saying, what else can I do? What else can I, you know, refine about what I'm teaching is at the heart of a great teacher, which is obviously why you're chartered, which is, which is lovely. Um, if I come to you, Debbie, can you tell us a bit more? First of all, there may be some listeners who don't actually know what dual coding is. If you could tell us a bit about your project and what, what you did. That would be great. Thank you. Yes, of course. So dual coding is this idea that your working memory can take in visual and verbal stimuli at the same time, can process both because it uses different parts of your brain. Um, and this can help to support working memory to avoid cognitive overload. Um, can be particularly useful for people, children, but 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 all learners um, who suffer with um, um, specific learning um differences, difficulties, um, who, who struggle to retain and who have, you know, weak working memory. So this idea that you can be looking at something that contains words and pictures at the same time, or it could be pictures and there's a, um, a voiceover, for example. And I, I had a, I, I kind of went down that route because I had a class who um, who had a lot of specific learning difficulties, differences. And I had a kind of a, a hunch that if I could enable them if, to access their learning through a sort of dual coding by, by, by showing things visually as well as through words, um, whether that was the spoken word or the written word, it would really um, enhance and, and facilitate their learning and kind of, you know, enable them to, to progress. So I, dual coding was my kind of my, my overriding uh, 
um, project. And then I specialised, so I, I, I honed in on picture books and graphic novels. So the use of picture books, graphic novels to support comprehension amongst children who were coming out as being below um, the sort of, you know, where they should be in their reading comprehension and, and general reading ability. So that was where I came from. Um, I had seen previously that there was quite a lot of snobbery around, you know, what, what children should be reading. This idea that you should be reading, reading some sort of worthy tome that's got lots of words and very few pictures. Um, and it was my own hunch that actually picture books and comic strips and graphic novels are fantastic to support understanding because they have the visual element. Uh, I also found, and, and this I think is a particular issue with primary, is that there is very little or, or there is scant research done amongst um, primary children. It is more difficult. There are more variables, I think. Um, certainly the age of the children has a massive impact. It's not to say it's impossible, and I, I think it's very possible, but there was very little out there for me to kind of go on. I was looking at these quite old studies that gave me a kind of a bit of a hunch, but but nothing really. So what I did was I implemented a, a guided reading group, a very straightforward. I got the children together and what I did was I, I used, um, I yarked them. So they're kind of the York um, reading test um, uh, process. Um, I went through with them. It was like a pre-stage. So kind of benchmark them all for their levels. And I benchmarked uh, another group who had very similar sort of uh, levels. And I ran a, a, an intervention, a guided reading group where we looked at the most wonderful picture books and graphic novels and comic strips. And uh, we shared these and I talked to them about their understanding and we looked, you know, uh, and I measured it. I also did a pupil questionnaire both before and afterwards to ask them about their attitudes towards reading. And there were some very positive implications um, afterwards. It was very difficult to say definitively because obviously, you know, the choice of text, I'd, I'd chosen books that looked good. I'd got, you know, lots of lovely um, images, but I could see children engaged with reading which who previously weren't engaged. I had children asking for books. I had feedback from parents. My child's now asking for books. They've asked for books for Christmas. That's never happened before. And I could see in terms of their comprehension and their understanding, because the picture supported them, I could see how that was empowering them to feel like they could understand what was going on. So for me, um, yes, it, and it brought up, you know, lots more questions, but it's enabled me to share this with, with uh, my pra other practitioners at school. Uh, we've widened our selection of books that we use at Guided Reading. I'm hopefully breaking down these barriers and this kind of snobbery, and I am using it continually. So I'm doing the same um, sort of thing again, the same intervention with a, with a similar group of children, because obviously every year I have a new, a new class. And I can see already just one picture book in, one of the boys who absolutely hates reading is is begging me to get more of them. Okay, that's that's really interesting. I mean, it, it's it's miles away from the old visual audio kinesthetic approach to you know you're this kind of learner or you're that kind of yes. learner. Yes, but it's very much uh, it strikes me you know as the teacher you're looking at a combination of what will um, engage and motivate my students. What are the skills that they need? What are the resources they need to enhance their learning? To really give them the chance to um, maximize their, their learning. So it sounds fascinating. I think what, yeah. for me, what's really exciting about all of this are, are, is that almost everything that anybody says, I think, well, this just sparks a whole load more questions. <laughs> and I think the teachers that are constantly questioning their practice and reading and listening and finding out what's, what's emerging across the education landscape, which of course is what the Chartered College is all about, are those teachers who will never 
be satisfied probably because there's always going to be something else they're going to want to look at. But uh, thank you very much for sharing that. We're going to come to um, Lisa Maria now. Um, Lisa Maria, how do how do the findings that Karen shared relate to the research on on cognitive science more widely? You know, some of the what shows great promise actually in the evidence isn't yet bearing fruit. So, what are the tensions with the applicability of this kind of approach? I think it's really interesting that um, Karen's findings from um, the teacher tap uh, poll very much map onto what we know from um, from research on cognitive science. So I'm thinking in particular uh, uh, about the EEF um, report on cognitive science and that um, mismatch between cognitive science findings on the one hand and an uh, applied cognitive science in the classroom. And what we know from um, the evidence from cognitive science, of course, is that most of it stems from uh, maths and science. And what Karen presented to us is that um, that's also the subjects that um, teachers feel more conf most confident in. And I think that's remarkable because it shows that probably having more subject specific findings makes it easier to then apply them because you don't have to go that extra step. And Debbie, you mentioned it, of course, Ellen, as well, with your geography background. There is that additional translational elements that if the, 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 the evidence from your particular subject or your particular phase isn't there, it's up to you to translate it and implement it. So that requires a whole lot of confidence and maybe more of a, a trial and error approach. So that's the first one. It's interesting that we see that clear um, match there of most evidence stemming from maths and science and also um, teachers, especially science teachers, uh, reporting that they feel most confident. Of course, we also know, and Debbie, you mentioned it, that the majority of research in this area um, stems from older students, from work with older students. That's not to say that we don't have any evidence from early years in primary, and it's certainly we're um, uh, gaining more and more insights in this area, but the majority still stems from secondary. And again, that maps onto the findings that Karen has presented um, that secondary school teachers on average um, seem more confident in the application of cognitive science findings in their setting. In that way, I think um, that that's really interesting that, that we're seeing that teachers report similar things um, that make sense in the context of what we know about the research more widely. And as you mentioned, Alison, I think it's also worth mentioning that um, it's great that we have these emerging findings, really strong findings, actually, from cognitive science, from basic cognitive science that really help us to understand understand how learning works. That's really important. But we also know that we know less about how that can actually then be implemented in the context. And both um, Debbie and Alan have mentioned it. That's because classrooms are extremely complex. Uh, we're dealing with students. We're dealing with a lot of different students um, who come to us with different needs, with different experiences. We are not teaching in a vacuum. Um, even if Ellen is just teaching um, geography, for example, she's teaching geography before or after maths, before or after PE, um, late or early in the day, all of that can have an impact um, to students of different ages who have many other things going on students with learning needs, etc. Now, when we conduct an experiment, we make sure as researchers that we control for as many of these variables as possible. And we need to, because otherwise it makes it really, really difficult to conduct an experimental studies. Of course, in a classroom, we can't do that. We can't just exclude all of the students who don't fit our criteria. 
And that's not to say that um, cognitive science findings, basic cognitive science findings don't apply in the classroom. It just means that we need to conduct more studies in the context of classrooms. And I think both Debbie's and Ellen's contribution today showed just how valuable that is, just how valuable teacher research, teachers asking the questions that matter for their classrooms, investigating them, and then reporting on those findings and sharing it with others is important the impact that that can have. Of course, that's not going to replace a randomized controlled trial. Nobody's claiming that. But it complements the research knowledge that we have accumulated through experimental findings. And I think even just today, from uh, what you've shared with us, we see how powerful that can be. And I think we also saw um, from Ellen's and, and Debbie's contribution the different layers of complexity that are going on in the classrooms. I think Ellen has uh, beautifully described the ecological validity, for example, of retrieval practice and, and what happens in these real questions about um, repetition, how often you should be using retrieval practice. Um, we know that it is powerful that it is effective but how does that actually translate into my practice as a uh, as a teacher does that mean I should be starting every lesson um, with retrieval practice how much should I even cover when I use it should it just be one unit should it be over a longer period of time I think these practical questions we haven't quite gotten to grips um, with yet and it's very exciting that we've now got um, charter teachers and people who are embarking on a charter teacher journey and people elsewhere who are asking themselves those questions, conducting that action research and sharing their findings. And I also found it, um, I found your study really fascinating, Debbie, about um, picture books and, and graphic novels and how that relates to dual coding, which isn't really something that's spoken about in the research literature much, but I love how you've taken that and really applied it to your context and and owned it and made it made it your own um, and have thus contributed to, to our understanding of dual coding. And that really links it all back to, to teacher expertise and the importance, and you said it, Alison, about um, understanding the findings, understanding the science, and then um, imply, applying it in, in our own context, making it our own and making it fit to our context. Now, I'm just going to play devil's advocate as well, because that's what I'm here for. I found the finding about teachers, um, some teachers, um, a proportion of re uh, respondents um, to your poll, Karen, saying that they didn't feel that they uh, were quite confident um, in their understanding of cognitive science, yet they were applying it um, to their context, especially around retrieval practice, really interesting. And of course, we could say that on the one hand, that could mean that maybe um, you don't necessarily need the understanding to apply it. But I wonder whether that also means that in some contexts, teachers are being asked to do something um, without necessarily being supported to develop their understanding about it. And that's also a big question. I think we've heard a lot about that um, anecdotally in different contexts that suddenly uh, sc entire schools are implementing retrieval practice at the start of every lesson. Now, I'm just saying that we uh, we need to question um, whether implementing these findings in that way is going to have an impact. And I hope that people are evaluating the results and will be sharing those because maybe it does have 
um, the positive impact that we're expecting or that we're hoping for. But if it doesn't, then we should also share that and we should constantly question what we're doing, as you said, Alison. Um, and it's great to see that that's actually happening uh, in, in schools up and down the country. So those are my two cents um, from the research perspective. Well, thank you very much. And thank you, everybody, for engaging in this. I wonder um, what you think listening to this, whether you think that you're engaging in cognitive science, whether it's whether you're just doing what you've always done and it's just got a faddy new label. I would really encourage you to, to look deeper into this, read the papers, don't just read the headlines in terms of what, what are articles saying, what are researchers saying, because this feels like an area of great promise. And we're always looking in our classrooms for quick fixes, quite frankly, but going beyond the quick fix, this could be something that really makes a massive difference to the quality of the learning that goes on in our school. So I feel as if it's a, a professional responsibility, really, that we look a bit deeper. We will continue with these podcasts. We will continue to um, explore <laughs> tricky subjects. And we very much hope that today has been helpful to you. Thank you very much indeed. Should I start every lesson with retrieval practice? What problems can I mix during interleaving? And does cognitive load theory mean I can't do any inquiry-based learning anymore? If you've ever asked yourself any of these questions, or you have got any other questions relating to the implementation of cognitive science findings in your classroom, we want to hear from you. We're currently conducting a research priority setting activity at the Chartered College of Teaching, and we want to hear from practitioners across the early years, primary, all the subjects in secondary and further education about the questions that you're asking yourselves as you're planning and implementing your lessons. If you're interested to read more about research priority setting activities and how you can support us, please click the link as part of this post or in our bio if you're watching this on Instagram. Thank you so much. We look forward to reading your questions and please do share this widely if you can. If you have enjoyed today's episode and would like to access more research evidence for your classroom, you can join the Chartered College of Teaching for as little as 196 per month at www.chartered.college. And remember to download TeacherTap free from your app or Play Store to share your views, opinions and experiences from the classroom. Every voice makes the picture clearer.